Good morning and welcome to Rethink Church. If you're new with us here, this is a really exciting time for you guys to be joining us as we're going into the holiday seasons. We've got a lot of fun things coming up and opportunities, um, but we would love to connect with you at guest services after the service. We have a gift for you guys, um, and our guest service is, is over by our One Cup Cafe outside, so you can come find me after the service, and we'd love to answer any questions you might have. Um, and then speaking of holidays, we've got a lot of things coming up. Um, let's start with Thanksgiving. So the week after Thanksgiving, our church will be taking a virtual Sunday. So we will be having the service posted online. So you can join us there. You can find us on our Facebook page, on rethinkchurch.cc, or Vimeo, or all of those good things. So connect with us that morning. If you have a friend in town, feel, or feel free to invite them to join you in your home for church. Um, but we want to just take some time to uh, kind of quarantine after our family time so that we can go into the holiday seasons as healthy as possible. Um, and then, in, on December 9th, we are bringing back our favorite Christmas tradition here called Christmas in the Ville. Um, if you have never heard of this before, it is an awesome party we throw on for the whole community, not just the church. Um, we had so many people last time that we have to even rethink how we do it um, with the space that we have. Um, and we have not done it since COVID, so we are so excited to bring it back. Uh, there is a planning meeting today, so there will be more details to come. If you want to be a part of volunteering for that, make sure you talk to Mark or Heather. You can talk to me as well. I cannot guarantee I will be here to pass along the message, um, but make sure someone knows if you're interested in volunteering. But definitely make sure you're planning on attending. It's just a really fun event for families and kids. Just think of like every favorite holiday tradition and like bundle it in one event, and that's Christmas in the Mill. So uh, more details to come, but we're excited about that. And then um, also one other quick little holiday thing. Um, there's going to be a lot of opportunities um, to give to our community in this season and be generous and also to receive. But um, one simple way that you can love on the church is Amazon Smiles. If you shop on Amazon, you can choose Rethink Church on Amazon Smiles. And that's an easy way to just support um, our community here at Rethink. Um, and then lastly, as we move into our tithes and offering portion of the service, um, we usually like to talk about thanking you guys for giving to the vision and mission of Rethink Church. Um, one of the things that we are passionate about at Rethink Church is praying for, loving on our educators, our school system. When we first came to Maryville and moved to the area, um, the Lord put MIS on our heart, but also just the school system as a whole is something that we prayed for and we trusted God for. And it has just been amazing to see the amount of educators that have come into this place, um, not just from MIS, not just from Maryville. We also have Crown Point, Gary, um, Mark and Heather both work for the school systems in Maryville now, so the Lord has worked that into their story. Um, so it's just been really sweet to see the way that the Lord's answered those prayers. And we trust that he's going to continue to answer those. And so I want to encourage you guys this week, um, pray for your educators. Um, pray for the people that are here, that are working in the school systems. It's been a hard season. And we're almost to the holidays, but just pray them through that last bit that um, they can love on our children well and lead well in the schools um, and be a light for Christ and offer hope where sometimes there's not as much hope. So that's how I want to encourage you guys this week. We're so glad you guys can make it, and we hope you enjoy the service. Thank you, Roland, for that. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 5 is what we're going to pick up on. And this seems weird to think about this, but this is a continuation of, uh, of last week. Uh, about the family, the household code, and all that, and how, how Paul is restructuring everything, saying, hey, everybody, no matter where you are in the household, you report to Christ. Like, it's not your, you know, uh, we talked about last week that husbands, and, like, for whatever reason, some publishers put verse 21 in chapter 5, 
into the, the different category, but for whatever reason, uh, there's, they do that, but there's not in the original. It says submit to one another as you submit to Christ. Does that make sense? So Paul is restructuring everything, and then we're going to just dive right into it. Um, and I'll be honest, I told uh, Russell this morning, I'm like, I'm actually fairly nervous. Like, I don't get nervous when I usually preach, but today, it's there. I'll just be honest with you. So, uh, if I'm, like, weird and awkward in the moments, now you know why. Well, there you go, all right? Unless you want to trade. You don't want to trade? We're all good? So, let's read it, and we're going to dive into it, okay? Uh, so, Ephesians chapter 6, here's where we're at. Um, so, and by the way, we're almost at the end of Ephesians. It's only taking us like 10 months to get there. So, it's only six chapters. Here's what it says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win the favor and with their eyes, uh, but, but likeness of Christ. Doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever he does, whether he's slave or free. The masters, treat your slaves the same way. Do not threaten them since you know uh, that you both of you have masters in heaven, and that he has no favoritism uh, with, with them. So, I've said this before, that this is one of those passages that when I had my little intervention when I became a Christian, uh, my friends in there, like, had this little, like, hey, let's sit down, Mark. It feels like you're joining a cult. I believe in unicorns. Demeans women. They encourage the slavery. And this is one of those passages they brought out. And I was like, no. And then I was like, no, it does say, slaves obey your masters. And what do you do with that, right? And so it made me, like, really force, like, forcefully go in through this process of, like, if I'm going to join this whole thing of Christianity, following Jesus, I cannot just do it blindly. And I would encourage you, do the same thing. Find, like, explore those spaces. If you have those, like, those questions, just keep exploring them. Do not step away from you, those questions. This is one of those processes that, that I think that <clears throat> as we do this, we get to actually find the depths of our faith. Does that make sense? So we're going to talk about this. We've said this before, that there's context, there's cultural context, and then there's God-ordained, Holy Spirit-inspired solutions. And believe it or not, Paul drops this God-ordained, Holy Spirit-inspired solution, and we probably missed it right in this text. But the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that just gets planted, right? The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that gets kneaded into a dough, and it transforms everything. This is the power of the kingdom of God. It doesn't come in vast, like, major decisions. It comes in small insignificant, seemingly insignificant things that transforms the culture and the communities around us. And this is what we're going to dive into today. <coughs> so, think about slavery 2,000 years ago. When we read, like Roland said, we read the idea of slavery and masters, we put in our context into that image, right? In, in Rome, the Roman Empire, there's 50 million, anywhere between 10 to 25% of the Roman population were slaves. 50 million slaves in that entire empire. Transatlantic, here in our culture, we have 15 million slaves. Now, those numbers aren't great. I'm not like, hey, we're so much like, <laughs> just like, think, let those settle in, right? Current day, modern day slavery, which by the way, we made it illegal so it can't exist, right? It just waved it, it just like magically went away. 27 million slaves here in the world today. 
You and I do not interact on our daily basis without interacting with some form of slavery. That's just the reality of it. 85% of cocoa beans that makes our chocolate comes off the back of child slave labor. Off the east coast of Cote d'Ivoire in Africa. Um, the, the coffee beans, stuff like that. Just one of the reasons we partnered with Oak Coffee because we know that every person throughout that entire process is getting paid a fair wage. Does that make sense? When it comes to clothing, who knows? Your best is guess is mine, right? So whether it's uh, sweatshops or anything like that, it's all part of this process. When I worked for Toyota, we had a shortage on a uh, rubber pipe, a, like a rubber hose that connected to a pipe. And I kept rejecting them, saying, hey, it's too difficult to work with, we can't make this work. And our vendor rep came out and was like, Mark, you gotta stop rejecting, we're not getting any more back. And I was like, well, why? Isn't it just simply like, we reject and they give us better product and all that? And he's like, there's something issue going on with the trees, but also on the plantation, all the slaves stopped working, they refused to work. And I was like, say that again? And he just said, yeah, all the slaves on that plantation just stopped working from where we get the rubber. And I was like, we just admitted this? Like, we're like, and he's like, well, yeah, it's the best break that we could get. Wow. And I was like, huh, good to know. Yeah. Like, so even your cars somehow are formed by, like, work with slave workers. Does that make sense? So uh, it's one of those processes that no matter where we find ourselves in, and I'm not going to tell you what to do with that. Like, you can settle that down, and God will all believe the Holy Spirit will lead you what to do with that, okay? But it does raise the question, when we read this kind of a passage, should followers of Jesus just simply obey everything we find in the Bible? Or should we wrestle down what is actually being said? My guess is we should probably wrestle this down, right? Do not go out by a slave and say, obey because the Bible says so. That's bad. I'm just going to put it out there, right? Don't walk around and do this. So let me just, I'm going to pause really quick before we go into this, though. As I've read this, and I've worked for bosses who I cannot stand or even respect, I go back to this passage. Because what does Paul tell the, the, the people like, reading this? He's reading that you obey Christ, and you serve Christ through the way you serve your master or your boss or your supervisor, whatever you want to interject in there. Does that make sense? And if, you have a, if you're a supervisor, the way that you serve Christ and love Christ is how you treat the people that you work with. So how we interact with you matters. And so when you and I show up to a workplace or whatever, we're actually representing Christ. And the way that we show up and do work is a reflection of our worship of Christ. We don't have to wait till Sunday morning to worship Christ. When you take a 10-minute break, take a 10-minute break. Don't take your 15-minute break and say it was a 10-minute break. That's called lying and you're stealing from the company as well, right? And we get into a whole ethics of that. But followers of Jesus, we should be the best workers around. And I say this to my class all the time. Make as much money as you possibly can, ethically and legally. Followers of Jesus, do the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and you can do whatever you want, but like if, if you're like, hey, I want to make X amount of money, go out and do it ethically and legally, but be the best employee that you possibly can. And the way that you do that, you actually get to worship Christ in your workplace and how you actually interact with that. So, as we move forward into this, when we look at the issue of slavery or like the issues of slavery is just the topic that's going to help us get through this process. What we have to actually go through is this process of filtering through. If the Bible says this, or if there's a topic that comes up and we say, how do I actually interact with this issue? We have to go through this process of filtering through what is it we're going to move wisely into this process. Does that make sense? So if the issue of slavery comes up, does that mean we just have slaves? No. 
So what we do is we look at scripture, and then we say, okay, what does the entirety of scripture say? Not just the one verse. Whenever you're looking at it, you have to look at the entirety of scripture, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 or 22, whatever it is, I can't remember right now, it's somewhere in there, you know what I mean. So, you're looking at the entirety of scriptures, not just the one to justify your point. Okay? The next thing you have to do is you look at history, like church history. Has church history gotten everything right? Absolutely not. There's a ton of crap that we've gotten wrong. But we've gotten some things right. Orphanages, libraries, schools, hospitals, all of those came from the church. Modern art came from the church. Does that make sense? So we have some great ways of saying, hey, we've gotten some things right. We've made some amazing decisions as well. We'll get into that here in a little bit. And then you have to also look at logic. Two plus two does actually equal four. You don't get to rewrite that and say, well, actually, I think this is, no, you're wrong. How about this? It's logic, right? And then your personal experiences. Now, different church faiths and all that, they're going to emphasize certain ones while diminishing the other ones. Uh, have you ever heard the phrase sola scriptura? Mm-hmm. It's wrong. This is one of those reasons why. Okay? <laughs> and I know some of your bubbles just burst in. You're like, no, no, it's wrong. It's like you can't only use scripture. You have to actually use other things that God designed us with. Does that make sense? Sorry, but I like that. God did not make us just robots. Does that make sense? Take a breath. It's okay. So, God did not just say, hey, just plug in this code and you're be good. Like, part of this process. So in the 1830s and 1840s, when I started, I didn't look up. Sorry, I went out of order here. So, when I was getting ordained, or like in the process of being ordained within an organization, a denomination, I wanted to find an organization that actually believed it. I knew that there wasn't going to be a perfect denomination. But I wanted to find one that actually fit my social justice-driven things that did not demean women. So I started looking into the history of the, de- of the Western denomination, which is what I'm ordained in. In the 1820s and 1840s or so, there started this movement of pastors in the southern states of America who started actually teaching this text, saying, actually, I think slaves are not supposed to be. Like, you can't be a follower of Jesus and have slaves. In North Carolina, South Carolina, in Virginia, in Georgia, Arkansas. You can imagine how well they were welcomed. Yeah. Right? So, in, uh, in uh, South, Southern Wesleyan University, there's a, a small little wooden building. It's probably half the size of this room. It's a one-room church building. And it's wooden, simple, very basic, and there's bullet holes all throughout it. Because the pastor preached, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and own slaves. And the mobs would show up to that church. They shot him and they lynched him. And this young pastor who was 25, 27 years old, somewhere in there, survived it all. And he started taking this text along with the other context of this text, saying, whoa, whoa, I think we've actually misunderstood this text. And here's what we're going to have to work through. And so he survives this, and it became a, a station on the Underground Railroad. And they, so they, they rebuilt it, and they didn't rebuild it, but they relocated it on the campus of Southern Wesleyan University to tell the story of what our pastors, this, the heritage of our pastors. And it's one of those places where I walk, and I'm like, my car's in Weston with Weston when we were at camp. And they come walking, and I was like, shut up. Like, it's the only, like, one of the only places, like, hey, you're in holy ground here, shut up. You know what I mean? Like, 
your opinion doesn't matter at this point. Just set in and just absorb it. Does that make sense? And this is one of those times that, that I remember looking through because when you actually go through that, those filters of scripture and history and experiences and logic, you come to the point and you're like, does, does God really want us to have slaves? Mm. No. And so you have to start working through this. So the pastors who started making those movements of planting churches and hostile enemy, like behind enemy lines, basically, uh, they started looking at the early church and how the early church dealt with this passage along with the, some other passages we'll look at. And they started realizing, actually, you shouldn't be a follower of Jesus and own slaves. And Paul comes out and says it in another letter. So Paul, who's in Rome, is writing this letter along with two other letters. The, uh, the Ephesians, the Colossians letter, and the letter to a guy named Philemon. And so we talked about this before, that Ben Withering III has this idea of, like, when you talk with somebody you don't necessarily know, you use flowery butter, like, you fluff it up a little bit, language-wise, right? Ephesians, you like Paul has a more direct relationship with, or more stronger connection with, so he's using a little more direct language. Philemon, he has a deep personal relationship with. He led him to Christ. He's a good friend of him, and he's going to use some language that is just to the point. Does that make sense? So we talk about the, the household code, and Paul restructures it. Uh, Carson, you want to put up the white image of the household code, and so in this you can see this that Christ is the head of the household. Husbands and wives submit to each other. Children, obey your parents, not just the father. And that was a crucial, like, hey, obey your mom. Like, this is Paul saying, they're equals, deal with it equally. And then he says to the the slaves, obey your masters, but masters don't think you can get away with whatever you want to get away with. Mm -hmm. Christ is watching you. Does that make sense? So to Philemon, he says this. He says, Philemon, accept Onesimus as a brother. Now, that seems insignificant until you understand the context of Philemon and Onesimus. So, Paul's in Rome, and he's writing these three letters, and he sends these three letters with two guys, Tychicus and Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. Somehow, he becomes a follower of Jesus in Rome, and he's got, like, Paul's led him to, to disciple them and all this other stuff, and now he's sending him back to Ephesians, or Ephesus, Colossae, and Philemon. Imagine carrying this letter as Onesimus. And you have, we don't necessarily know what happened, but for some reason, Onesimus ran away from Philemon with a lump, with a sum of money. And Paul says, whatever debt he, he owes you, charge it to my account. He's not talking a spiritual like, oh, any indebtedness, like, he's talking money. He's talking like actual money that says, hey, whatever he owes you, just charge it to my account and I'll pay you. By the way, you owe me your life. Does that make sense? Well, Paul directly says, you are not to accept him as a a slave. You're going to accept him as a brother. He restructures everything. And as as pastors in the 1820s and 30s and 40s were looking at this here in America, they're going, we've got this whole thing wrong. This changes everything. Now, let's pause really quickly because slavery in America is not the slavery, than the same kind of slavery in the Roman world or in other parts of this world. So, in the ancient world, if you owed somebody a debt and you actually could not pay them back, you could sell yourself or a family member of yours to pay them back. That was just a normal practice, right? It's not racially driven, it's just financially driven. 
For some reason, we interject every form of slavery into as a, as a slave, as a race issue. And what we have to understand is, every single culture in the world has been enslaved by other cultures of this world. It's not just a skin color issue. So, in the Roman world, sometimes the, the army would conquer your territory, and you would become a slave to the Romans instead of dying as well. There's this issue of like conquering, and that was not racially driven either. That was a spiritual, spiritual issue, a religion issue. My God is more powerful than your God, and you're going to be my slave. That's what my God told me. Does that make sense? Like the spiritual abuse. We would never do that in America. Um, <clears throat> stuff like that. But we, we, like that's the, the reality there as well. So 50 million slaves. And the way that the church like almost exploded was through the slaves. You have 50 million slaves who are all identifiable by tattoos or piercings. So imagine you show up to a household, a house church in Ephesus, <coughs> and you're going into this household, and you feel odd because you're invited to this house of a wealthy person. Anyone love going to new places and meeting new people that you don't know? <laughs> Especially if you feel less than human. So imagine you walk into this house. And you identify, you can, you can put everybody into position based on what they're dressed like. This person's wealthy, this person's middle class, this person is free, but like, like really, really poor. You can scan the room within a few seconds, you know everybody based on that, and the words that they're using. You just put everybody in class. It's like middle school and high school, just all wrapped right there, right? And so you start working through this, but then you see somebody walking freely with tattoos or piercings that would identify them as a slave. And then that person sits at a place of honor. You have the connection, right? All of a sudden you have this connection, you're like, hey, I get this. And then let's say they, that, that house church opens up with a, with a hymn or a song, and that slave is the one leading that. Do you see how this restructures everything? That, that the family that Christ is creating, you know, that Paul's trying to spread, it's not based on status, it's not based on skin color, it's not based on gender, it's based on everybody comes around the faith of Jesus, and they worship Jesus, not status, not skin color, not nationality, it's all Jesus. And so, in that moment, you have this slave connected to another slave in that regard, you see, like, women would see women leading and stuff like that, and co-leading and working together, and all of a sudden, and there are questions of, like, everyday movements, those slaves are talking to another slave, saying, what is this all about? And it's like, hey, it's just Jesus. Right? Like, the movement of God does not happen because of massive media, publicity, like, movements. The movement of God happens in everyday language, everyday people just having everyday encounters with, with each other. And saying, hey, here's a connecting point. And in these, in these little house churches, status and rankings never matter. Does that make sense? So it's one of those things that we have to start working through. Now, what Paul understands is that he cannot wave his magic wand and just make slavery go away. He also has no authority in the Roman Empire to just make it illegal. And like we said before, just because something is illegal doesn't make it just go away, does it? What Paul is going after is the conditions of our heart that creates the systems of slavery. He's going deeper. That's why he's talked about in Ephesians 1 and 2 about our identity and our calling and our conduct. And now he's saying, okay, this is how we actually live this out. Here's some practical ways. The way that we structure our households need to be completely redone. 
Uh, it needs to be, all, everybody's pointing and submitting to the head of, head of Christ. He understands that we can't just make it illegal, so he goes after our hearts. And that's a whole different story. We see post-Civil War here in America that the heart condition of America, most Americans didn't really change. The, the, the issues that were there, like just, it was illegal, but didn't make the racism illegal. And now we even have like what we call, what I call diet racism. You know what I mean? Like you're successful for it. And you want to hear that? Like those are the ideologies that kind of divide us and go after us. And what Paul's driving at is like, no, 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 let's go after the very core of the issue. Let's, let's make this not just illegal, but let's transform everything about you. Like yeast transforming a batch of dough. Like a mustard seed running wild until you don't even see it. It's just there. Does that make sense? So what we see in, in American history after the Civil War in the 1870s and 60s or so, you see this massive movement of missionary work. And some of them were great. Some of them were absolutely amazing missionary work. And they would boldly put all of their items into a coffin saying, we're leaving America or Europe, and we're going to Africa, Asia, to any other parts of the world, Australia. And we don't know if we're going to be accepted or not, but we're not coming back. It's a one-way ticket. And we have missionary works in that, in, throughout this world as great ex examples of that because of their boldness um, and their movement and stuff like that. But we also have this, this tinge of history where it's like, it wasn't so great. Some people went... And said, if you want to be a more, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to more, look more like me. You can't dress in your tribe, in your culturally normal ways. You have to dress like us. And before air, think about this: before air conditioning, we made people wear suits. Why? In places that are hotter than America. What were we thinking? That's just like we go back to the common sense and the logic. Does it make any logical sense? Not at all. Right. But anyway, for whatever reason, some, some missionaries were like, no, no, if you, if you want to be more like Christ-like, you have to look like me. Right? You have, to, you have to dress like this, and you have to talk like this, and stuff like that. Other missionaries, other, other movements that happened were these, these weird parts of history that does not get taught in history classes for some reason. Um, because it's really embarrassing, let's just put it that way. But in the 1870s, they started this movement of the World Fair Parts of the World Fair were these pre-human zoos. Mm -hmm. So they would send people who knew the water routes between the two continents. And they said, hey, you are masters at skill, like skillfully navigating between America and Africa. Can you go not capture, not necessarily take, but can you maybe purchase some exhibits for us? And they would bring people who are very like primitive and like different than us, and they put them into the world world fair. Uh, you had Totobengo, who was in St. Louis for the world fair in the 1870s, and he would raise like part of their tribal thing was that they would raise their like they sharpen their teeth and do two points, and that was just part of their culture. But then he's sitting in America and he's on exhibit. In the 1930s, he ends up committing suicide in New York because he's can't go back. But he's not here, like he didn't fit in here in America. Just because we made slavery like illegal doesn't mean we took away the ideologies. Does that make sense? And what Paul and Christ are trying to do is like to say, let's let's drive after the motivating factors here. 
and let's do this correctly. Let's not just wave our magic wands and make something illegal. And so part of this is this idea that, that we have to just start exposing things for what they are. Um, and the seedbed, the ideology of that seed, the, the ideology there became the seedbed for these pre-human zoos. The pre-human zoos became the, the, the seedbed for eugenics. Eugenics becomes the seedbed for Planned Parenthood. Where Planned Parenthood was started as a way to keep minority numbers down. All of these are there because of the, the, the ideology that is there. You can see this just layer upon layer upon layer. And if you start peeling it back, you're like, whoa. Darwin himself says this, that the white race is the most superior race around. But eventually, unless we control other people, we won't be the most superior race. You see how this gets driven into a, a culture without even understanding and knowing it. And so what, what Paul is trying to do here is like, oh, no, we can't just make it illegal. We can't just glaze right over it. Let's drive after the actual motivating factor here. Now, let me just pause really quickly. If you've ever been a part of a church but you felt less than because of your skin or your race, I just want to apologize. As a church leader, we own our, our history. And I jokingly kind of point fingers at people, but at the same time, God has really kind of driven into me this week that like, I have that same potential. That I have the ability to turn everything of my hatred and like the things I can't stand in this world I could create systems that make me come out on the top. Does that make sense? Jesus was meeting with a group of lawyers at one point, and he's sitting around discussing things. And the lawyers ask him, these are experts at the law, and said, hey, how do we inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, how do you read the law? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus is like, sounds great, go, go do likewise. But the lawyer wants to be justified. He says, so who's my neighbor? Here's what he's really asking. Who can I not love and still let me get eternal life? Is there, is there a person, is there a category? Can I like, get that list? You know what I mean? Where's that line that I can just not love that person? And so Jesus tells us a parable, a story. And he says this, this man was walking from Jerusalem and he fell into the hands of robbers and these pre, a priest walked by and just avoided him. A Levite walked by and completely avoided him. Now, in good Jewish rabbinic tradition, a normal everyday Israelite should have been the next person in line. That's like, you know, we have like a priest, a, a, a priest in a bar, a rabbi walking through the bar, shit jokes. This is that, that pattern in Jewish rabbinic tradition. Instead, Jesus completely turned it on his head and he says a Samaritan picked him up. That would have been like saying a Nazi picked the robber up and showed him kindness. Or a ISIS member, or fill in the blank, you know what I mean? A White Sox fan, whatever, like that, those kind of things, right? So, we all have those ideas, right? So, he, Jesus says this, he, a, a, a Samaritan picks him up, bandages wounds, deals with them, takes him to an inn, and he pays for the, like, the, the cost of it, says whatever cost, just charge it, I'll come back and take care of it later on. Um, and so Jesus ends the parable and he says this, so who was the man's neighbor? And the lawyer, the Jewish lawyer, cannot even say the word Samaritan. 
He says, the one who shows mercy on me. Probably through gritted teeth, right? See, here's what happens. Our arrogance and our elitist mentality allows us not even to see people the way they are. This is what drove the Rwandan uh, genocide in the 1990s. The Hutus started for months leading up to that event talking about how the Tutsis were, were cockroaches and trash, less than human, and all this. And then at one point over the broadcast radio and TV, all of a sudden there's like a signal that went off and said, eliminate the trash and the cockroaches. And so they went after their neighbors, the Tutsis. And all of a sudden we see this, just like we have this potential in our, in our, in our lives that if we don't actually eliminate the ideologies and the, and the hatred that's there, the seed beds that are there, we could easily create systems where we create this, where we come out on top. And this has been an issue all the way through the scriptures. You see, look at Numbers chapter 12, and you see Moses marries a Cushite Kusha, woman, and Miriam and Aaron start making fun of Moses' wife because of her darker skin. Numbers chapter 12 is right there. Cush is modern-day Ethiopia. And so all of a sudden you see this, and God's anger burned against Aaron and Miriam in verse 9. And they have to come and apologize, right? And as the Israelites were leaving Egypt uh, for after 400 years of enslavement, God tells them, never have slaves among you. And then you look at 1 Kings chapter 9, just a few generations later, and Solomon uses forced labor to build the temple. And God's anger burns against them. It's one of those things that we just, if you look at the, the parts of the Bible you want to look for, it's all rainbows, leopard, you know, like all these fun little things. You start looking at the actual realities of the scripture, this is one of the reasons I became a follower of Jesus. They didn't hide anything when they came to the scriptures. They may not clarify everything, but they didn't hide it. Does that make sense? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few moments. Annalise and Russell are going to come up and lead us in this next song. But I just want us to evaluate our lives. One of the reasons we started with communion this, this Sunday, it was like Isaiah, when you find yourself in God's presence, someone seems to say, woe is me. I'm in God's presence. And I have sin in my life. But what we talked about before is that God does not avoid our sin. He leans into our sin. And like Isaiah finds himself in God's presence, and the angel comes, and the seraphim comes, and he takes a, a piece of coal, and he purifies the sins of Isaiah when he touches it to his lips. This is what communion does to us. The elements of communion, the sacrifice of Christ, purifies us of our sins. We no longer have to walk around with that guilt and that shame. You and I can be freed from the bondage of slavery. You and I can have the ability to walk around and say, yep, that used to be me, but now I'm no longer like this. And I can now walk around in the freedom and the confidence that Christ is sacrifice for us. So I just want to take a few moments. Think about, is there somebody, because we all ask the same question the lawyer asked Jesus. Who can I not love and still have eternal life? And as soon as I say that, some of us have that person's face right in our minds. Some of us have a group of people right there. And my encouragement would be that you would start forgiving that person. And that starts with, by confessing your sins to God. Let's pray, and then we're going to walk into this next song. Jesus, thanks for this day.
into who you are. The fact that you did not wait for us to get better. That on our own, we've created stupid systems that think that we're better than other people. At the very core of racism, God, we believe that certain races get a, do a certain dosage of your image and others don't. And for some reason, some of us have bought into this lie, this, this scheme of the evil one. And Jesus, we come, come before you and we just confess our, our abilities to do that. We confess the ability that, that we can easily create systems that we always come out on top. God, would you reveal these next few moments at the very core of our hearts who is it that we do not want to love? Who is it that we refuse to love? And like the power of the yeast and the power of this mustard seed, God, would you start to transform us? Would you allow us to confess that to you? Would you empower us to tell somebody else about that issue? And maybe our next step is, God, that we would actually confess that to that person for forgiveness. We love you, Jesus. Jim, you're for this. Amen. Hear the word, the word, I saw
Yes, all of So let's go. Be a church. Have a good week.